listening to the Bible 126 show. We are in Judges 14, and uh, we finished the uh, verse-by-verse review of the book of Judges. Judges is an interesting book. It, strangely, it's the source of some of our most familiar stories as children. Tales of Samson and Gideon and so forth are familiar to most of us on the one hand. On the other hand, there are certain chapters in the book that we've just finished <laughs> that uh, have caused serious people to try to get it banned from libraries because it's not fit for children. <laughs> and the last few chapters of this book are pretty grim. The one thing about it, though, the risk in the book of Judges, some of the stories are so familiar, we may fail to really perceive the messages. So I want to just leave some time to go back and take another look at the book. The book, of course, takes its name from the leaders that emerged during a period of time that probably represents one of the most low ebbs of, of, of Israel's moral decay. Roughly from about 1400 B.C. to about 1000 B.C. is the era we're talking about. So we're just going to take a look at a few things here. The name Sophetim is means rulers. We use the word judges. We think of it in a judicial sense. The word here actually comes from the verb shafat, which means to put right and then rule. It's really the word leader is perhaps more descriptive because they uh, uh, wasn't just judicial. They were governors in a much broader sense, although not broad geographically. Most of them really, we suspect, had only swag in their immediate region, not throughout the whole nation. But clearly, from the Scripture, we know that they were divinely appointed, even though they had some rather conspicuous uh, weaknesses. Now, the book opens with a summary and closes with a summary. We need to understand the context. The book of Joshua dealt with, of course, the conquest, the land that God had promised them they conquered. And the great tragedy is the generation that followed Joshua didn't follow through. And so... They didn't really appreciate their inheritance, they didn't cherish it, and they didn't follow the instructions that God had given them. And that was the result. Now, it's interesting, it says in Judges 2.16, it says, Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges which delivered them out of the hand of those that spoiled them. The word delivered here in the Hebrew is yesha, which is delivered, saved, liberated. The, the word judges comes shafat from a, it's a related word to save, rescue, govern, to put right what was wrong. You can almost, instead of calling it the book of judges, the book of deliverers, if you will. Now, there are four characteristics that hammer uh, away through the whole book. The first is there was no king in Israel. Second is that everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and that, that's used as an indictment. That's as shockingly loose is what, the, is what it really implies. There was disregard for the Word of God, and of course they were enslaved by their enemies. These very enemies that God had commanded them to wipe out, uh, they made peace with. They appeased, they'd rather have them as slaves than they would as follow God's uh, instructions. And uh, they were told to wipe them out. Now, because they were trying to do it on their own power, they couldn't deal with the iron chariots and the other technologies that these pagan tribes had, so they didn't follow through. And even when they were victorious... They didn't wipe them out. They reduced them as slaves um, into forced labor. In other words, they didn't follow through the covenant promises. Now, it's interesting. I'm going to suggest to you the possibility that these four characteristics are a problem in the world today, is that there is no king in Israel because some years ago they declared they would not have this man rule over us. They chose Barabbas rather than Christ. There is no king in Israel. The good news, though, there is a king coming. In the book of Judges, the good news is it'll be followed by 1 Samuel. There is a king coming, Saul and then David. 
So in the biblical narrative, that, that deficiency is going to be dealt with. But in a broader sense, we also await for a king in Israel. And it's strange, even in Christian churches, how few Christian churches recognize the promises of the Old Testament and New Testament that we deal with a Jewish king. But in any case, uh, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their eyes, in their own eyes. How tragic it is that that is the attitude, the culture that we've adopted in this country. Our country with its incredibly proud heritage. Our country, which probably represents the greatest experiment in human liberty in the history of man. And we've chosen to use that for uh, value relativism. You have your truth, I have my truth. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. That's anarchy. And that's the way we're moving. As we look at our newspapers and news reports and the crime and, and the bizarre things going on in our culture, it's a direct result of the philosophical underpinnings, or lack thereof, in our educational establishment. We're now in the second, third generations of people who have absolutely no concept of right and wrong. It's funny, I can remember I grew up in a European household. Parents are from the old country. But their whole concept was very simplistic about education. The main thing you're supposed to learn in education is what's right and wrong. And that was fundamentals. Yeah, reading, writing, with sure, that's, those are skills. But you're supposed to, the main thing to learn as you grow up is what's right and wrong. And how interesting it is, we've denied their existence in our culture. Alan Bloom wrote a book that, uh, you know, the closing of the American mind. After 30 years in, as a college teacher, he wrote a book that it shocked him to discover that his book made the cover of news magazines some years ago. But in our, in our denial of truth, we have caused our young people not to look at history for any answers because they, we deny that history has any answers. Then we're appalled when they don't know their history because they haven't looked at those, the great traditions of thought and thus have rejected, uh, and because of all that, because of our attempt to open the minds, we've actually closed them. And the narrowness is shocking. Anyway, the third thing in this list, of course, is there was disregard for the Word of God. That characterized the time of the judges. It also characterizes our culture. The good news is about judges that God can use individuals, maybe the least expecting individuals. And, of course, just as they were, we too are enslaved by our enemies, bondage of materialism, and so forth. There are four stages of decline, we notice, in the summary in the front of the book. First is in fighting the enemy. We talked about the victories of Judah, and we uh, encounter the Philistine cities of Gaza, Eshkelon, and so forth. And I won't go through it again because we, uh, this is just by way of review. The second mistake was sparing the enemy. Benjamin, Ephraim, Manasseh, Zebulun, Asher, Naphtali, and Dan all failed to overcome their enemies. And uh, they were instructed, and if they had been doing what they're supposed to have done, the book of Deuteronomy is supposed to be read to the entire nation orally every year at the feast time. If they had done that, then they would have always encountered Deuteronomy 7, where these commandments are reinstated at what they should be doing, and they didn't do, and as a result, those pockets of trouble plagued them. And, so, of course, neglecting the word of God is, is a fundamental. What they did as a result of that, then, is imitating the enemy. And I think it was uh, Matthew Henry that uh, said that the church most influences the world when the church is least like the world. We've tried to do it the other way around. And, of course, finally, they end up in bondage, obeying the enemy. There is, throughout the book of Judges, a cycle of sin. It starts with sin, 
That leads to servitude or bondage that ultimately will, in extremis, lead to prayer or supplication, which then God will respond, relieving them from that, and then there'll be a period of silence. But the tragedy is the cycle will just repeat. Again and again and again, the book of Judges, that's exactly what happens. They'll, they'll be in sin, they'll be in servitude, they'll finally scream to God for a deliverer. God will give them a deliverer who delivers them. And what do they do when they're delivered? Go right back to the way they were before. And the whole cycle repeats and gets more and more degenerative. You'll see the decay of the leadership right on through. There's a cycle of nations. Alexander Tyler mentioned 1750. Late nations have a life cycle that's very similar to this. We think of life cycle of people. There's also a life cycle of nations. Nations go from bondage to spiritual faith. From spiritual faith, they get great courage. From great courage they gain liberty. But from liberty, they gain abundance. And abundance generally turns to complacency. The complacency will degenerate to apathy. And the apathy to dependency. And dependency back into bondage. This is a cycle also that goes from spiritual faith to courage, liberty, abundance, complacency, apathy, dependency, and bondage again. Now, one of the interesting questions, where's the United States in the cycle? You know, there have been many, many studies by all the great historians of the world's great civilizations. And what's fascinating is they all follow this pattern. And the, the pattern also seems to endure approximately two centuries. Most of the great civilizations transit about a couple of centuries. Well, one of the questions you might ask yourself is, where are we on this cycle? We certainly, uh, the country was launched with great spiritual faith and great courage against great odds, which earned us liberty. And that liberty, of course, has produced one of the most abundant cultures in the history of the planet Earth. That abundance, of course, has led to complacency. And complacency is degenerating to apathy and increasingly to dependency. And the fear, of course, is that we may be heading into bondage. Maybe a bondage of a different kind, but bondage nonetheless. As we look at the book of Judges, there's quite a list of these guys that we've talked about. Othniel was oppressed. Uh, 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 the first uh, column here are the various judges that we've gone through. Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah and Barak as a team, Gideon, Tola, Jair, Jephthah, Ibzan, Elon, Abdon, and of course Samson. And then we have the different servitudes, the Mesopotamians, the Moabites, the Canaanites under Deborah and Barak, and of course Gideon with the Midianites. Tol and Jair, no, no express ones were necessarily mentioned. Jephthah, of course, had his entanglement with the Ammonites and dealt with them. Now all of those, pretty much, were tribes to the east and to the south. But when we get to Samson, by then we see the Philistines in strength. And the Philistines do not get subjected by Samson. They get maybe harassed and checked to some degree, but it'll take Saul and David to subdue the Philistines that are forthcoming. But this uh, period of the judges constitutes approximately 400 years. Uh, it's hard to really reckon it because there's some overlap in some of these issues. The 20 years of Samson probably overlaps the 40 years of the Philistines, if you will, and that sort of thing. But another disparity we can't help but notice as we analyze the book a little bit is the how some things are far more important than others, apparently. We have several, uh, Shamgar, Tola, and Jair, who have just a couple of verses, rather mysterious. We learn some provocative things about the name Tola, 
But uh, the real background of these, we know very little. On the other hand, both Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson have a hundred verses. A hundred times as much said about them. We have a great deal about Gideon, uh, two chapters, a hundred verses about him. Samson also has uh, four chapters in Judges, 96 verses there. And, of course, Jephthah has quite a bit said about him. And, of course, his son, Abimelech, um, for what it's worth. I think we pretty much mapped the tribal allotments of the area. Uh, This map shows Dan on the coast, just uh, west of Judah. But as we learned, a large portion of the tribe moved way up north to carve out some additional land for themselves. We read about that. Remember, we had the the whole Jabin and Sisera thing uh, took place pretty much uh, around the Galilee area. Deborah's court was down in the south, not far from what Jerusalem is today. And I won't go through the whole story again, but we did have a fairly uh, uh, detailed exploration of the military maneuvers, how uh, Cicero gets tipped off and gets sucked into his into this trap. And, uh, of course, the chariots are uh, useless in the mud flats when the mud goes there. The unseasonal floods render them useless, and Barak's volunteers then, of course, rout his army and, and uh, so forth. So... It was interesting to notice the variety of weapons that are used in the book of uh, Judges. Shamgar used an ox goat. He was just a farmer, yet he killed 600 men. That would make a, an interesting martial arts movie. <laughs> Yael uh, had a real knack with a hammer and a tent peg. Took care of that captain. Gideon, of course, with his pitchers and torches, uh, he routes the whole Midianite army with 300 guys. We'll take another look at that in a minute. Samson, of course, has a number of pranks, but uh, most famous, perhaps, is the jawbone of an ass with which he slaughters a thousand. Wouldn't that make a great special effects movie? I think it'd be dynamite. And, of course, David will subsequently uh, use a stone from a shepherd's sling to kill Goliath. It always reminds me of 1 Corinthians 1.8, For the preaching of the cross is them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved is the power of God. The foolishness of God. How it pleases God to use the things... Uh, the foolish things of this world confound the wise, and the base things of this world confound the things which are mighty, and the things which are not to bring to naught the things that are. Why? So that no flesh should glory in his presence. If this verse, 1 Corinthians 1.18, is really important for us all to realize what it says, it really divides the world in two parts. The entire world in two parts. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved is the power of God. There's only two categories. Those that think it's foolish, and those that are saved by it. Disturbing it. How interesting it is how God is, seems to go, especially in the book of Judges, in fact, through the whole Bible, God goes out of his way to use weird remedies. And, and I don't think it's just a sense of humor. I think he's making a point. You see, God has, he's, he's the one that's doing it. It's interesting, just the, when we saw the adjusting of the odds, the enemy had about 135,000 facing Gideon. He initially mustered 32,000. That meant he only had a four to one uh, disadvantage against him. And God has him uh, send away the ones that are fearful, 22,000 go home. So he's now down to 10,000. The odds now have gotten worse, 13 to 1, 13 and a half to 1. And as you know from the whole thing, uh, 9,700 get eliminated from that group. So the attack force is 300 guys, 450 to 1. And uh, how interesting that is, how God seems to enjoy, if I can put it that way, uh, the odds being stacked against him. Why? To demonstrate that it's God, not these 300 that are really doing the deed. A couple of interesting things as we went along, we tried to pick up the little loose ends. They took when, when they captured the ornaments, the word ornaments actually were ornaments of the crescent moon in the Hebrew. 
And uh, these Ishmaelites, in verse 24 of that chapter, worshipped Al-Ilah, the moon god, which, of course, is the, the same god that is, adorns every mosque throughout the world to, to this day. So it's interesting how we find the, the whole issue of Islam uh, having its seeds, even here as early as the book of Judges. This is long before Muhammad was born. Islam did not begin with Muhammad. The worship of the moon god and the satanic, occultic worship preceded Muhammad. He just packaged it in a little different style. And then we encounter this interesting guy, Tola. His forebears had strange names, Pua and Dodo. Don't knock Dodo. We are in Judges 14, and uh, we finished the uh, verse-by-verse review of the book of Judges. Judges is an interesting book. It, strangely, it's the source of some of our most familiar means the beloved one. <laughs> Batola means the worm. That's all we know about him. But how interesting, how interesting the Holy Spirit rewards diligence by digging behind the word. The word Tola means worm. It also means scarlet. Because the way they got the red dye was from a worm. The Kermis Vermilio is of the family of the Coxidae, which is the order of Thyacata or Hematera. It's a, it's a worm from which they, if they crush it to get dye. In fact, the, the mother will cling to a tree, lay the larva, and die there. And let the, when the larva hatch, they eat the mother to get started. So it turns red, and then after three days it turns white and falls off. Suddenly we get the implication of Tola. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. How interesting. Also, his shamir is thorn. We, we went through all that one over there. I just, I just went through the slides to get some, you know, throwback of what we studied. But Anna and Moab and Edom, of course, were on the east side. The Philistines will serve us in the days of Samson, the Amalek to the south, and the Phoenicians up to the north. And Aram is north uh, east from the state of Israel. So we went through some of the pagan gods. We encounter a lot of them in this book because, indeed, the society they were embedded in were was uh, pagan. And the great tragedy was that Israel did not obey their covenant relationship and keep themselves separate. We got into this whole business with Jephthah's vow. Did he really sacrifice his daughter? And, of course, there's problems with that view. Many scholars, good scholars, believe he actually did. But Jephthah knew that God would not approve or accept human sacrifices all through the Torah. His friends and neighbors wouldn't have permitted it in order to fulfill his foolish vow. If that was, And what about the location? The Lord would only accept the sacrifices at the tabernacle and only by the Levitical priest. There's no Levitical priest that would do that. No one, even the most unscriptural priest wouldn't offer human sacrifice on the sanctified altar. And furthermore, a burnt offering had to be a male, not a female. He would have to travel to Shiloh to fulfill his vow and that's in a rival territory, the Ephraimites, with whom they had a deadly feud. It's not likely he went there. So that's all very unlikely. And by the way, in the law, it provided paying the proper amount of money could re- have redeemed his daughter from that vow. That's in Leviticus 27, first eight verses. So everybody's still, people still cling to that view. Let's look what he said. And Jephthah vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If thou wilt without fail deliver the children of Ammon unto mine hands, then it shall be that whatsoever cometh out of the doors of my house to meet thee when I return to the place from the children of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's and or I will offer it up for an burnt offering. We've got the valve connective there, which can be used either way, either and or or. That's the key to the whole mistranslation. If you have the Boolean logic of the valve connective, it can be a conjunction, A and B, where both have to be linked, or it can be a disjunction, A or B. Either one is acceptable. 
And clearly, what we're dealing with here is an and or an or, and we're dealing with the or connective. Something else we run into in the book of Judges is this whole idea of a code word, the shibboleth, remember? That's how they could tell uh, if they were Ephraimite or not. Because they didn't have the ability to say shibboleth, they had to say sibboleth. They had a, a sibilant problem. So shibboleth means a stream or near of corn. Sibboleth means burden. The slight different pronunciation of the word, see, it's actually spelled different and it's pronounced differently. So uh, because they couldn't pronounce that, it re- was a, a review. That's why the word shibboleth now is used as an idiom for a code word. And uh, it's interesting how this even happens to Peter. After a while, they came unto him that stood by and said to Peter, Surely thou art one of him, for thy speech betrayeth thee. His dialect re- revealed that he was a Galilean, even though he's down in Judea, and so forth. And uh, Mark says, points out the same thing. A maid saw him again and began to say to them that stood by, This is one of them. He denied it again. And a little after, they that stood by said again to Peter, Surely thou art one of them, for thou art a Galilean, for what? Thy speech betrayeth thee. So, or agreeth thereto. So, anyway, these, these things are consistent the way through. Book of Judges. We went through, in the first few chapters... Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar. Then we got into the military maneuvers of Deborah and Barak. And we spent two evenings on uh, Gideon and, and, and those interesting times. His, his son, his self-appointed son Abimelech, makes a mess out of things, which says you, sometimes you have more danger in victory than you do in defeat. Chapter 10 and 11, we got into Tola and Jair, which is very brief. But then the whole Jephthah saga went on for a couple chapters. And, of course, we finally get to Samson and spent two evenings on him and the Philistines, the very colorful career of this very enigmatic character, very colorful, but astonishingly unfaithful in some respects. And again, we're shifting to the focus on the West with the five Philistine cities, Ekron, Gath, Ashdod, Ashkelon, and Gaza. We don't get it in the book of Judges, but when you get to 1 Samuel, and we'll be doing that subsequent to study, we'll be getting into Samuel. I think it's 1 Samuel 6 is the funniest chapter, in my opinion, of the entire scripture. We'll have a hard time getting through that chapter without cracking up because the Philistines steal the Ark of the Covenant and what they have to do and what happens in response to that is an absolute crack up. But we'll wait till we get there on that. And of course, we had the whole exploits of Samson. The Philistines, of course, very important to understand these people because that, the Philistines in Latin is Palestina. It's the Philistines that gives the secular name to the land of Israel. The Romans called it Palestina as a way of denying Jewish identity with it. And by the way, they were not Arabs. They were from Mitzrayim, Egypt, originally, from Kaftor, the northern delta of the Nile, from which the Phoenicians also emigrate to Asia, probably through Crete. But their origin is Hamite. They're, they're Egyptians. They're not Shemites. They're not Arabs. They're not Ishmaelites or any of that. And they settled in Palestine in Abram's time along the coast. We find them in Genesis 21. The Philistine means immigrants. It's from the Ethiopic philosa and uh, the Hebrew palash, which means wanderers. And Romers, the Romans named the region after them as just a way of offending the Jews and, and trying to deny a Jewish presence. They had become very formidable by the time of the Exodus. That's why they go around the eastern way to get to the promised land. They advanced north and possessed fully the seacoast from the river of Egypt all the way to Ekron, confederacy of five cities that we encountered, and their speech differed from Hebrew. And they sold the Israelites as slaves to Edom and Greece and elsewhere. And they were very, but one of the technologies they were proficient in was smelting iron. Their iron chariots were the advanced technology of their day. And because of that, they outlawed all smiths in Israel. It isn't until Samuel 12, Israel starts overcoming all that. And they used to burn their prisoners alive. That makes it kind of interesting. And I won't get into the topology here. That leads to the whole story. It's interesting. We have this interesting encounter, though, with the parents of Samson. 
because the Lord, the angel of the Lord comes there and they ask for his name. And he indicates that it's wonderful. That's exactly what Isaiah 9-6 says. For unto us a son is born, sent unto us a child is given. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and so forth. Samson always catches our attention because of his pranks. Killing a lion barehanded? Try that sometime. <laughs> Slaying 30 Philistines in chapter 14. That in itself, not very advertised, but that's it. Think about it. Killing 30 professionally trained warriors by yourself? When he catches the 300 foxes in chapter 15, non-trivial exercise, probably trapped them. And then, of course, breaking the bonds that he's famous for. Slaying a thousand of the jawbone of an ass is, is uh, well known. Carrying away the Gaza gate for, what, 38 miles? Try that sometime. And, uh, of course, destroying the temple with this dramatic climax at the end. Temple Dagon we uh, encounter here. But he had been worshipped for a thousand years earlier. He's known as the storm god in some cultures, the sea god in others. The actual word means grain or fertility. Where dag from Dagon means a fish. Daga means to multiply or increase or grow. So the word has multiple connotations here. He is regarded as the father of Baal. He's usually presented or represented in, in, in glyphs and so forth as a half man, half fish by the Phoenicians and the Philistines. You also need to understand that he was worshipped by Nineveh, which gives you an, a new insight into Jonah's mission to Nineveh with the experience of the fish. One of the things we also couldn't resist putting in here, the peculiar parallels between the biblically recorded life of Samson, which is true, and the myths and legends that surround the legends about Hercules. Sam, each of them were had attributed to him supernatural strength. Uh, both of them end up being enslaved by women. Both of them have records of having torn apart a lion. Both have a violent death, partly voluntary, partly forced. And of course, it's interesting too that Hercules is surrounded with the two pillars. If you ever, if you navigate a sea, you go through the end of the Mediterranean from the Atlantic, you go through the pillars of Hercules, one at Gibraltar and one at the cross, and on each side of the Straits of Gibraltar, Mount Abila and Mount Calpe. Actually, I had a chance to do that once. It was pretty exciting. These two pillars are reputed to be rent asunder by the strength of Hercules' arms. The Temple of Hercules attire, again, also has two pillars, one of gold and one of smargas stone, which is sort of like an emerald, according to Herodotus. But what's really fascinating is Herodotus' account of, of the myths that, of Hercules' visit to Egypt. The Greeks say that when Hercules went down to Egypt, the Egyptians surrounded him, led him in a procession to sacrifice him to Jupiter, that he kept quite still for a time, but that when they were commencing the sacrifice at the altar which, by the way, was, was after he cut off, they cut off his hair, he turned in self-defense and by his prowess slew them all. Now this is Herodotus writing about 500 years before Christ. The episodes we read were more than a 1,000 years before Christ. So in other words, the Samson story precedes these legends by over 500, 600 years. So, but it's interesting that you would think, it seems at least, that the echoes of the exploits of Samson seem to have influenced the legends that surround Hercules. There's even more interesting things about Hercules because as you study the background there, clearly he was a Nephilim, if he existed. The last chapters get pretty grim. The whole uh, stuff with Mike and Danites who went through, and of course the Levite as concubine is probably represents the low ebb. In fact, we, we tend to believe that the chronicler, which is probably Samson, deliberately left these episodes to the end to sort of make his point of just how low the country had fallen. 
not just because the incident with the concubine and all of that alone, but because of the, the civil war that almost wipes out the entire tribe of Benjamin. So, And then the slaughter at Jabesh Gilead, the 400 versions, and the 200 kidnapped wives went through all that last time. And, of course, the graphic abuses, blatant homosexuality, the gang rape leading to murder, the injustice, the brother killing brother, the kidnapping of the wives, all that, is one of the reasons that the many well-intentioned people are arguing that the Bible isn't fit to be in a library. Well, they got some surprises, but uh, when you read those, you can see, see why. Sessions 15 and 16 will be allocated to the book of Ruth. Uh, the book of Ruth occurs at the time of the judges, and it's sort of a pickup from the darkness and the depravity of judges. The book of Ruth is this elegant love story, which also is one of the most important books of prophecy in the Old Testament. And uh, so it will round out our study of the time. But um, let's take a look at the book of Judges in terms of lessons. You know, one of the things that we all should uh, be sensitive to is that there are about ten lessons that we might extract, probably many more, uh, from the book of Judges. The book has made it clear that God can and does work through all nations, Gentiles as well as Jews, by the way. And uh, we find that all through the Scripture, but we see it even here in the book of Judges. Acts 17.26 says that, uh, that God has determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. That's speaking of all nations. There may not be an obvious pattern to history, but we do know that there's definitely a plan of history, and the centroid of that plan is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And once you understand that, then all things take their, their uh, perspective from him. I think it was A.T. Pearson that uh, used to say, history is really his story. History is his story. It's the story of Christ, whether you realize it or not. Now, it's interesting, too, one can argue from a number of places in Scripture, and certainly the book of Judges, God gives nations the leaders they deserve. One of the things, as you go through the book, you'll recognize, if you study carefully, the quality of the character of the judges deteriorates. You finally get down to Samson, he's very strong, but he's really very enigmatic. He's very, uh, he, he breaks all the rules, doesn't keep his covenant, tries to marry a pagan gal, etc., etc. He, he is certainly not walking by faith. Yet even there, God has a use for him. His great physical strength was coupled with the weakest of characters. Gideon, Jephthah, Samson, they all did the work that God gave them to do. But they didn't provide leadership. One of the things as you read the story is you see them raise up and they accomplish deliverance of the people, but they don't really provide leadership. Dedication is no substitute for careless work. And success in the eyes of the people is no substitute for likeness to Jesus Christ. And so there's... Much to be said that we can learn in terms of our personal walk from these lessons. The one thing we should not lose sight of throughout the entire Bible, but especially Judges, is that God does graciously forgive and helps us begin again. We see this dismal saga of them falling again into sin, praying for deliverance, getting delivered, and before long falling right back into it. And when they pray, what does God do? Forgives and delivers. He chastens when we disobey. And he forgives us when we repent uh, and confess our sin. How tragic it is that you and I also have to learn that lesson over and over and over again. It's so much easier to learn it here. But we should obey the Lord because we love him, not because we are looking for something from him.
Perhaps my favorite example of that is Daniel 3, when the three Jewish young men were in the fiery furnace. They were being threatened with the fiery furnace. said uh, to the king, Our God is able to deliver us, and he will deliver us. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the golden image which you have set up in Daniel 3. Or as, as I usually loosely translate it, up yours, O king. You know, so... <laughs> And God's word stands despite people's unfaithfulness. You know, one of the things that the judges accomplished all through this book is because they believed God. Sometimes their faith was weak. Sometimes their walk was stumbling. But God's word stood in spite of it all. As his children, we too should live on promises, not explanations. When we're facing a trial, we should be clinging to God's promise and not expecting explanations, not, not expecting that we are necessarily going to understand what he's doing. That's called trust of the most important kind. And it's a warfare. The people on the line, the firing line, the infantry, may not know the battle plan. They just follow orders. The grand scheme of things isn't necessarily visible to you know, all, all, all levels down. Well, we're in a warfare. And all we are to do is follow God's orders. Now, God does use human government to accomplish will. It's another thing we learn from the book of Judges. There was no king in Israel. But God was still able to work. And uh, we grouse and grumble about uh, the administrations in this country, some of which have been pretty deplorable. Others, even at their best, give us grave concerns. Let's remember who's really running the show. And it really isn't George Bush or Saddam Hussein or whoever. It's God's in control. Well, we could talk more about that, but I'll start getting into politics. Let's move on. The other thing we learn in this book is that unspiritual people can cause a nation's decay. This nation is in deep trouble, and it's in trouble primarily because the people have abandoned their heritage. They have abandoned the God that had delivered them. You'll, you'll learn as you watch Scripture and also human history that apostasy and anarchy go together. Apostasy and anarchy go together. And it was G. Campbell Morgan is the one that said, the church did the most for the world when the church was least like the world. How tragic it is that our churches try so hard to be like the world. Nations don't decay because of the people who peddle pornography or narcotics. They decay because the Christians are no longer the salt and light. Second Corinthians 7.14, God announces the principles, as if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. Notice who that's addressed to. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, ah, oh, and turn from their wicked ways. It's the sins in the body of Christ that's keeping this country from achieving what God would have us achieve. What's in the way are not the pagan left, are not the pornography peddlers, and all the rest of it. What's in the way is the body of Christ. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. Precious, precious verse, Second Chronicles 7.14. The purest will say that's addressed to Solomon, the, the nation of Israel. Absolutely true. In a denotative sense, absolutely true. But God also is immutable. He changes not. He's announcing a principle. If my people are called by my name. How many of you in this room are his people? 
Praise God. If my people are called by my name, well, do four things, God will do three. Humble ourselves, we know how to do that. Pray, we know how to do that. We may not do it enough. Seek His face. That's not an intellectual head trip. That's a commitment thing. Ah, and turn from their wicked ways. If you want a revival in America, it's got to start with us. Right here. Now, there's another side to this too, by the way, and that is that we, uh, we should realize that God doesn't tell the whole story all at once. Many of these judges we know very little about. Tola, Ibzan, Elon, we don't know much about them. We know quite a bit about Deborah and Gideon and Jephthah and Samson, but there's a number we don't know much about. God hasn't chosen to reveal it to us. I think there's a lesson there too. We should not be too quick to judge what other people are doing. Because God may have a hand in it. We may not understand what God is calling us to do, how it fits in. It doesn't matter as long as we understand and we're following His orders. In the book of Judges, different people in different places were worshiping God in different ways. And none of them knew, all, knew everything that was going on. There was no king in Israel. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who doth, shall bring to light the hidden things of darkness, and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts, and then shall every man have praise of God. Neat. Okay, that says it. God still blesses, even this day, those who live by faith. All through the book of Judges, we have the most bizarre stories, using the most bizarre tools, in the most strangest circumstances. But if you look through the book of Judges, and when you go through it a second time, you'll see that everyone that's winning there is doing it by faith. And really faith alone. Faith is not believing in spite of evidence. That's superstition. Faith is not believing in spite of evidence, but obeying in spite of the consequences. Big difference. Faith takes God at His word and does what He tells us to do. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please Him. Romans 14.23, Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Oh boy. Everything you're doing that's not of faith is sin. We always think of sin as immorality, all kinds of things. No, sin is just doing something other than what God has called us to do. Well, there's another good piece of news about the book of Judges. And that is the story's not finished yet. The book of Judges is not the end of the story. In fact, the book begins with the words, Now it came to pass. That's a strange way to start a book. If I drafted a book and sent it to Thomas Nelson and started with that, the editors would bounce it back. You can't start a story, and it came to pass. Or in the Hebrew it says, and it was. That's sort of abrupt. (laughs) But there are eight Old Testament books that begin, and it was. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 and 2 Samuel, Esther, Ezekiel, Jonah, all start the same way. You know why? Key question. Because it's all part of a single continuing story. We see that not just in the grammar. We see that in the content. We see it in the structure of the text. In fact, the whole cornerstone of our ministry is based on two discoveries. First is that it is. The 66 books are an integrated message, very skillfully designed. A single message system in its subtleties, in its textual structure, every every dimension of it. 
Secondly, it also has, you can, it, knowing that, you can demonstrate its origin is from outside time because those structures are anticipatory of data before it happens. The design occurred from outside time, the time domain. I remember there was a really terrible movie some years ago called The Golden Boy. Not worth seeing, in my opinion. But the, it, it has to do with, uh, I think it was Eddie Murphy, and he reluctantly gets drawn into the plot because he's presumably the, 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 the subject of some prophecy to save this Oriental kid, whatever. And he, he, gets, he gets tangled up in this thing, but he finally begins to realize he apparently is the subject of this prophecy. And near the climax, he's, he's starting to get confronted with these demonic dragons and all this stuff, and he suddenly realizes that he's, if he's in the prophecy, he wins. And so he has no fear of these things. And, and it's, just, it's a dumb story. I'm not recommending the story. But the, the plot line is provocative. You see, he had the insight. To, if he is, in fact, the subject of this prophecy, then he's also going to, he knows he, from that prophecy he's going to win. And so he, he, he goes at it. You know, too bad we can't learn that too. Because I read back here in the back of the book, and I, we win. <laughs> It's sort of it's sort of like a, um, a a sports coach when he's watching the the videos of his team at various games of the past season. He's not worried about the outcome because he knows how it's going to end. He's there to study the tactics and see how to improve. But my point is, there's no drama to it because he knows what the final score is. Well, we should treat life the same way because we know what the final score is going to be. We know how it's going to end. Well, there's one other lesson in the book of Judges that I, I feel, uh, while we, we've talked about a lot of things, little nuggets here and there, and we've, and we've looked at it expositionally, but there's another aspect of the book of Judges that I really want us to focus on before we let the book go. That God, all through the book, is looking for servants. During those strange and troubled times, God reached down and picked the most unlikely characters to accomplish great ends. I challenge you to go skim through the book of Judges a second time on your own with just that thought. Notice the people that God tapped. Most of them were not really, uh, they, they were willing. They weren't looking for that. They were farmers. They were uh, all kinds. And yet, God was looking for God is looking for people who are available to hear His word, that are open to receiving His power, and to do His will. Men and women, women here too, Deborah too. Let's let's not overlook that. And most of us are like Barak. We don't want to fight the enemy alone. Okay, God will deal with that too. But all of us in this room are different. All of us. God has a mission for. Some dramatic, some modest, but they're His missions. And He's looking for people. And He's not looking for your abilities. Most of the people God uses, it's in spite of their abilities. In fact, when people fail, it's not in their weak suit. It's in their long suit. Example, Peter. Go through the Gospels. There's no one more bold, courageous than Peter. He's ready to draw that sword at Gethsemane. I mean, this guy, we always say he has foot and mouth disease. He, he says the wrong thing at the wrong time, but he's, if you characterize Peter, 
He's aggressive and bold, right? And what's he known for? Denying the Lord three times to a servant girl and a couple people around the fire? You see, our strong suits also usually are a source of pride, and pride is the enemy of our Christian, Christian walk. And uh, so it's in our strong suit that Satan can set the traps. It's when we are weak that we are spiritually strong. When we recognize our weakness and we're trusting God, it's when we are in sync with what he wants to do. We see, gee, thanks God, I can take it from here. <laughs> Watch out. And of course he's looking for servants, and, and none of these guys had a picnic. Each one faced strange odds, some of them rather extreme. But the secret, of course, is don't look to yourself, look to God. Look at the challenge, look at the Lord. Now, something else, too, I think is very true. No Christian can do everything, but every Christian can do something. And God will put these somethings together into a tapestry that he will design, if we're really open to it. Well, this series, the 14 sessions, will be followed by two sessions of the book of Ruth. And God's people today, I believe, do not live in the book of Judges. They live in the book of Ruth. And uh, in fact, it's a, once, you, once you acquaint yourself with the book and, and, and plunge into its beauty and its softness and its excitement and its fabulous uh, you know, twists and turns, um, you'll, it's hard to believe that could have occurred the, during the time of the Judges. Yet it, it expressly is so. It's an elegant love story about a man who plays the role of the Goel, the kinsman redeemer. He's the rich, handsome hero of the piece, seeking a bride. One way to go through that book is to read it and understand the history, and it's a little complicated. You need to really understand. One of the benefits of the book is you really get a glimpse of the, the, the pattern of life in ancient Israel. But the second thing, the greatness of the book emerges in another way. Now, many colleges, for example, will study the book as an elegant piece of literature, a little four-chapter book. It's an elegant love story, and it is admired and extolled just as a piece of literature by secular colleges. But they miss the whole point because when you, once you know the story, then you go back and look at it again, you'll discover that every detail, every subtle phrase is prophetic in a profound way. You will not understand the book of Revelation chapter 5 and following unless you really understand the book of Ruth and much, uh, much more. It's read every year in the Jewish community at the Feast of Shavuot, the Feast of Pentecost. How fascinating. Feast of, all, of the seven feasts of Israel, the one that relates to the church, of course, is the Feast of Shavuot or Feast of Pentecost. And it's at that time that they always, the Jews, read the book of Ruth. And once you understand the book of Ruth, you understand that it is prophetic of the church also. Well, fascinating, fascinating uh, thing. So one of the questions is, where are you living? Are you living in the book of Judges or the book of Ruth? And with that, let's stand for a closing word of prayer. And let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Judges. Yes, Father, even this book with its disturbing and disappointing results in so many ways is such a lesson for us, Father. We thank you, Father, you're a God that is searching for those who are available to you. Oh, Father, we pray that that would include us. Help us, Father, to be more available to you, moment by moment. Help us, Father, to prioritize everything in our lives by Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for the lessons here, Father. We do pray, Father, that we would be living in the book of Ruth, right in the book of Judges, that we would be living with our eyes focused on our kinsman redeemer. 
And Father, we're startled as we realize that those areas of the land that Israel failed to root out the enemies of are the same areas that their adversaries occupy today. The Golan and the West Bank and the Gaza Strip are the same regions. Oh, Father, we recognize that we are involved in a spiritual war, not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers and the rulers of darkness. So, Father, we do seek your armor for this warfare. Father, we just thank you that you are victorious, that you are in control. We thank you, Father, that before we've chosen you, you've chosen us. And we do pray, Father, through your Holy Spirit, we, we would be ever more responsive to your will in our lives. Not just in the pursuit of our careers and the broader sweep of our lives, but in the very details. Help us, Father, to take every thought captive. Help us, Father, to walk moment by moment in a consciousness of your priorities and not ours. As we commit our